How are the leaders at all levels of management tackling the toughest challenges each day? That's the question. And this podcast is the answer. I'm Rob Fonte, and I'm bringing on the brightest minds in management to share practical solutions to those challenges you're facing. Let's get ready to jam. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Leadership Jam Session. You know, part of the reason why I love doing these episodes is because I learn so much from my guests. And as you know, I bring leaders in of all different levels, different backgrounds, and different industries. I've also come to learn that when it comes to managing people, the fundamentals really don't change. Regardless of what level you sit at in the leadership ranks of an organization, whether you lead people at a large or small organization, or whether you're in the public or a private sector. And today's guest reminded me of how true that is. As I sat down with the police chief, which is a first for the Leadership Jam Session podcast, to talk about what leadership looks like behind the scenes of a police organization. And today's guest is Chief Joe Kelly, who is the chief of police at Yardley Borough Police Department, located in Pennsylvania. And prior to joining the Yardley Police Department, where Joe was hired as chief of police, he spent 23 years with the New Jersey Transit Police Department, retiring at the rank of a deputy chief. And as you listen to Chief Kelly talk about his leadership journey, his approach, and what leadership looks like within the police organization, I think you might be surprised to hear some of the similar approaches and challenges that we come up against in the private sector. I know I was. His leadership journey also includes how he survived a shooting incident last year where Chief Kelly was wounded and how or if that changed him. Joe, welcome to the jam session. Are you ready to jam? I am. Thanks, Rob. It's good to have you here. So let's just walk through mm-hmm. a little bit of, of your journey here because okay. it's a fascinating journey. So you spent approximately, what, 23 years, New Jersey Transit Police. Right. You retired as a deputy chief. Right, in charge of police operations. Police operations. How many people were under you? How many police officers? The department has been growing by leaps and bounds since I left. So I think when I left, we were about 300. Okay. All right. And you had a very successful career there. You retired from there. Correct. I was retired for seven full days. Seven days. All right. Wow. <laughs> seven days. Seven days. After that long stretch of retirement, okay. you then jumped right back in and became the police chief. I was blessed, yes, to get this job in Yardley Borough, Pennsylvania. Wow. And how long have you been in that role? About seven and a half years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And and you went from a, a department of, of hundreds. Correct. Right. To a department... Smaller department. Right. Yeah, about 14. I got to imagine that some of the thought process was that you may not come across some of the intense scenarios that, that the New Jersey Transit Police might, you might come across. And yet, along your journey as the chief of police, you did come across a shooting incident where you were injured. I was, well. yes. Yeah. I had an old boss that told me, little police department, little problems, big police department, big problems. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, while my expectation was that I would not be involved in a critical incident like that, it all comes down to probabilities, yeah. right? And it comes down to one of the challenges of policing, Rob. We don't know what's behind any given door yeah. in any community. So, yeah, the probabilities are less in a place like Yardley because it's a suburban town, very sure. quiet. But risk exists everywhere. It does. It and, certainly does. And when I was a trainer, I was a full-time trainer at the transit police for a while. I used to tell officers, you, you know our mission there, right? We were, in, we were in hundreds of different communities. Yeah. And my feeling was, I could never prove it, my feeling was 
that officers' alertness was sometimes changed by the community they were in. And I always said, we have to be alert everywhere we go. Yeah. And it's the same here. Sure. And that's one of the leadership challenges as well. All right. So before we talk a little bit about that incident, let's get into some of your leadership principles. Okay. And, and let's just talk through what's important to you. I would consider myself kind of a hybrid between the old styles and, and some of the newer ones. I try and coach my my subordinate officers each and every day mm-hmm. to make them better, to make them stronger. I think when I make each individual stronger, I make the organization stronger by bringing everyone together. I think a group that believes in each other mm-hmm. is, is much stronger than one that doesn't. I'm a servant leader. It bothers me to the core when I see leaders that take positions just for money and rank. I don't believe in that. I think with each and every promotion, you get more and more work. Mm-hmm. You get more and more responsibility to take care of those that come after you, to look after them, to coach them, to train them. Really, if you break it down into his essence, to motivate them. I, I think that motivation is a better term than leadership in 2022. If your troops aren't motivated, you're not doing your job. It's interesting what you said about people who take positions for money and, and titles, which is very similar in, in the private sector. So there's definitely some parallel there, as, and appreciate you saying that. But I also... I think there's there's some of us out there that are that might be listening saying, Yeah, but you know, in in a police force there is that the rank and file. Correct. Right. And and loved how you talked about the motivational piece and the servant leadership piece. But does that necessarily matter when there's that, that rank and file and kind of like I say you do doesn't matter type of oh, thing? Oh, I believe it matters more in really? police departments. Yeah. I've mentored a number of young supervisors and I've also mentored other new chiefs, and I've t- tried to tell them that the rank insignia we put on our collars and we put on our shoulders will get f- someone to follow you for a certain amount of time. But if you don't replace that rank insignia within a few months with an actual desire to follow you, that rank insignia means very little. And the reason I say that, it's it, you, you're probably looking, well, you're in a paramilitary organization. How can that be? I'm in a paramilitary organization where you have to remember most of the work is done in the absence of supervision. And okay. we have to recall that. How often does a police officer see his supervisor on a given day? Hmm. How often does a police supervisor see their supervisor on a given day? It's very little. This is a job that's based largely on discretion largely on self-motivation. You can get compliance or you can get commitment. I always try and say it that way. I don't want compliance. Mm. That means that everybody will follow the rules to the bare minimum and never go beyond. I want people to be committed. Shortly after I got to this position at Yardley, one of the first things I noticed is there were no core values. There was no mission statement. There was no vision statement. So instead of me drafting that, again, having compliance and commitment in the front of my head, I said, let's all draft it. So I challenged everybody on the job to come up with core values, meaning what we would never forsake, even in the face of resistance. Those things we hold so near and dear that we will never forsake them. And also a vision and mission statement. We came together one night after it was all submitted, listed all the core values, saw how many were in common among each rank and file officer, And then discussed which ones we should keep, which ones we should drop, and why. We agreed on four. I think once you get beyond four, they're values, but they're not really core values at that point, right? Integrity, commitment, things like that, respect, courage. Those are the things we always talk about. Let's, Let's talk about courage as a core value. 
Most days, courage as a core value for me will not be confronting a criminal. Now, put the incident aside, most days, courage for me will be presenting to the people something they may not like. Going to the parent body and asking for money for for a given project or a given piece of equipment that I know is needed for the police department. So, so courage, any of those core values, but I'm using courage right now, will reflect differently to different people. And I try and tell them for a street officer, that may mean you ha- may have to go into an active shooter when you really don't want to. But these are the things we'll never forsake. So in that, in that project, we also uh, consensed on a vision and a mission statement. And then we all signed off on it and published it. Now, a lot of the people who helped write that are no longer there, but that became the framework for the organization. And when I look at, are we going into a new venture? Should we go to a given training course? Should we get a new piece of equipment? Those core values come back in. Hmm. Does this project reflect our core values? Does it reflect our mission statement? Does it reflect our vision statement? If it does, it's probably something we want to pursue. If the project we're looking at or the training we're looking at or piece of equipment we're looking at does not advance our core values, it's not in line with our vision statement, our mission statement, then it's not something we're going to entertain. All right. So I'm sure I'm speaking for a lot of listeners out there right now okay. who are probably shocked at everything <laughs> you just said, because you're sitting here talking about core values and how you're looking for commitment versus compliance. These are all things that are talked about in, in, in organizations, in companies. And I'm sure people are just sitting back thinking like, I never knew that would even exist or even taking the time to work with your police officers to build values. And, and those are all applicable to us. They, are, they really, really are. Yeah. If someone falls short on delivery of services, mm-hmm. it's not, you know, they didn't do something in accordance with policy. Right. When we have that talk on, on correction, right, I, positive motivation, we want to, we want to repeat performance. Yeah. Negative reinforcement, we want to change performance. And then discipline, we want to eliminate something you're doing, right? Yeah. But most of the time, we're working in that positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement area, where we want you to repeat something or we want you to change something. Very rarely are we in the discipline area. And I think that's true in the private sector as well. People don't come to work saying, how can I do something <laughs> that this organization doesn't want me to do? I don't think that's the case in many circumstances. So when we're in that negative reinforcement area where we're counseling or we're retraining or we're, we found that the policy itself was deficient, we look at our core values and we center those discussions around those core values. The way you spoke to that person was not exactly professional. Does that touch our core value of respect? Mm-hmm. It does. Well, what do we say about our core values? We never forsake those. You see how you can bring everything back into those and – the more we talk about them, the more we reinforce them, the more we'll live by them. Mm-hmm. They're on the back of our cars. They're mm-hmm. on our letterheads. They're on our business cards. There's something that just can't be put in a drawer. They're on the, the wall in our roll call room. So it's not just like an event that took place and that was it. Nope, it's not. It's it, snapshot it's, in it, time. We do this yearly event. It and could be. It could be. In most cases, I come across that that's what I see. Right. But you weave it into everything. I try. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of buy-in. The mm-hmm. buy-in came from the fact that I didn't write them. Mm-hmm. They're not the chief's core values. They're our core values. They came from us. And we agree that when we live by them, we're a stronger organization. 
and we have much more public respect. Policing is a is a is a very complex business in a democratic society, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of what we do requires the buy-in of the public. And when we live according to these core values and according to our vision statement and our mission statement, we get more buy-in. I'm curious, Chief, when you took this approach, when you took over the, the department, how is it received by your police officers? When a leader in policing comes from the outside, there's a lot of suspicion to begin with, yeah. right? And some states, it's more common than others. And New Jersey, you very rarely see a leader from the outside because of the way the laws are written and the tradition in which those advancements are made. In other states, they recruit to get a good leader by looking at everybody, including their inside and outside people. So I think that initial time when you get there, there's a lot of suspicion, especially because I'm out of state. Here's here's a guy who came from, from out of state and I wasn't a municipal police chief when I was hired. I was, a, I was a transit police chief, which is a complex job in and of itself. And I didn't invent this wheel about core values. This is many of the things I, I use at Yardley were proven in my prior life mm. at, at New Jersey Transit. They wrote a set of core values probably five to eight years before. Mm. They wrote a mission statement, a vision statement, and they did it through consensus. And it was well-received. So I knew that my, my former chief, Chief Drusilla, was a, was a great mentor. And I knew this would work. I'm just fascinated by that. <laughs> I am. I'm just, I'm just and it's playing. not unique to us. It's not. Yeah. I feel like I've lived in a cave. Sure, because <laughs> I've worked. I mean, I've known police officers all my life and known you for a long time. And that's just fascinating. Just to go back to what you were talking about with the the reinf- negative reinforcement mm-hmm. and the positive reinforcement. These are things that happen day to day or should be happening day correct, to day. Correct, correct. And I think the thing that stood out to me when you were talking earlier was that a lot of the things that take place, the supervisors aren't there witnessing it. Mm-hmm. Right? It's really no different than what happens in the private sector either. A lot of the things that we're not there to witness and we're hoping they're doing the right thing. So I think it's an excellent point. I think that's that misperception that in a paramilitary type of organization that things are followed to the letter, but the servient leadership piece and all these other skills that we're talking about and values are just as important. I'll give you another one. I worked for a boss years ago who believed that every employee, every officer, should be operating at 110%. And I never subscribed to that. I believe my job is to get make those people better. Mm-hmm. So if I have a 65%er and I can get them to 75, I'm doing my job. If I have a person who starts at 100%, they're, they're a magnificent employee, my job is to get them to 110 or 115. Mm-hmm. But not everybody is going to get to the same level of professional performance. But my job is just to make everyone better. Yeah. And I think in answer to what you asked before, how do you get that buy-in when you come from the outside? You do it that way. Yeah. When they know you care, they'll care what you know. So... When they see that you care for them, not only as police officers, but as individuals. Mm-hmm. How, how's your kids? How's your wife? These things go a long way. Mm-hmm. I wish everyone a happy birthday each year on their birthday via email or text. I wish them a happy work anniversary for when they celebrate a, a milestone there. And I've heard from more than one officer how much that means to them. You see them as an individual. You treat them as an individual. You treat them with respect, even when it comes to not only in the positive reinforcement, where I spend a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And any good chief who wants to get results and wants to get that commitment versus compliance is going to spend a lot of time positively reinforcing people. Mm-hmm. 
hey, I saw what you did. And I'm not there. We talked about that. It's common in the private sector. But I do read their reports. I do mm-hmm. see their work product. I do know when, they, when they've when they gone above and beyond with a person because I'll hear feedback from citizens. You know, that cop really made a difference. I'll give you an example. Last week, one of our officers came upon a disabled motor vehicle where the tire was shredded. And the poor kid who tire it was didn't have a jack and he said if i did have a jack it wouldn't make a difference because i wouldn't know where to put it kids working every day he's trying to make money my cop got a jack and helped him get that tire changed and taught him how to do that and that's going the extra mile it's not in there when i was at transit and i was the co of of the trenton station i knew we had you'll know that day when you reach commitment i knew that day we reached commitment down there i came in on my day off they weren't expecting me and I see one of my sergeants carrying a bag for an elderly woman up a set of stairs. That's not traditional police work. But when you get that kind of buy-in, through the use of positive reinforcement, not only for me, when they start showing commitment to the public, they're going to get positive reinforcement directly from the people they serve. And when they do, it's magic. Yeah. It's magic. Yeah. Especially in today's time. Exactly. I mean, police works up against a lot of challenges, but when we build that trust before mm-hmm. those challenges come, during the time when we're dealing with those challenges, we're, go- we're going to have a lot more buy-in from the public and a lot more support for our mission and what we do. Yeah. So let's shift gears for a minute here and talk about challenges. Okay. You talked about courage before as one of the core right. values. I know that you came up against probably one of the most significant challenges in your career when you were on a call and you were shot. Perhaps you can kind of share a little bit of, of how that went down. And I can give you basics. Anything beyond that would be a, a violation of, what's, of Pennsylvania law without getting into yeah. because we're still, we're still ah. in an active court case. But I responded to a domestic, and, and during the course of that domestic, which was called in by a probation officer, a subject fired through the door and, and struck me in my, in my hand and in my ear. Let me ask you, living through that experience— has that changed you? And if so, how? I wouldn't say it changed me professionally. Okay. Professionally, I wouldn't say it changed me at all, other than possibly I appreciate my colleagues, I appreciate mm-hmm. my neighboring police departments, and I appreciate my community much more. I always appreciated them, but I had people responding to, to my incident that I've never met from police departments, both close and far away. Mm-hmm. The community, the night I was in the hospital, I was getting photographs while I was awaiting surgery from my mayor, the show of the street where there was balloons out saying, we love Chief Kelly, mm-hmm. chalkboard saying, we love Chief Kelly. That trust that we built in the community where they know they have a police department that cares for them, that mm-hmm. came back and that came back to us. So personally, I think it, it's changed me in that I appreciate life more. Mm-hmm. I believe every year on August 18th, I'm going to celebrate a birthday mm-hmm. of, of really my, my extended life. But yeah, I, I look at things different in that way. It, it makes me look as a parent, it changed me. I have a son who's a police officer who was, a, who was only out of the police academy a few weeks then. So it's when the incident happened. Correct. Yeah. So I, I worried when I was, a, I tell people it's, it's strange. When I was a kid, I worried about my dad. Yeah. Then people had to worry about me. And now I'm shifting gears, right? I'm at the point in my life where I now have to worry about my son doing a job that I used to worry about my father doing. Yeah. Well, it's great to see you that that, that incident happened about a year ago. Nine months to nine months, a few days ago, and you you've recovered, and you're you're still on the job. I am, yeah, I am. Amazing. And and there was talks of that, like within the days that followed. Will this will this be where you leave? I had at the time I had thirty five years doing law enforcement. I think I've reached some some of the goals and milestones that I wanted to reach. 
But two things came there. I, number one, I don't think I'm done yet. I think I have a lot to give. Mm-hmm. I have a lot to give this business, and I have a lot to give the, the, young, the young men and women that are coming into it to share that experience. But the other thing was I'm retiring on my timeline. I'm not going to let some artificial event create a timeline for me on when I should go. And the other thing I heard after that shooting that's applicable, that doesn't that doesn't get too far into the investigation, was what does this say about your town? And the thing I was quick to point out, and, I, and I've said it multiple times since, and I'll say it to whoever will listen, that incident did not define the people I serve. The reaction of everyone else defined the community I serve. We saw an outpouring of support in person. We saw food coming to the police department that we couldn't eat. I mean, it just reached, and I wasn't there, obviously. I was home recuperating, but it reached a point where we just, we, we couldn't eat it anymore. <laughs> I received cards, not only from many people in my community, and some of them were touching. From, I have a few framed that were done by children. I have some that were done by the elderly that really, they're on fixed budgets. And then I received cards from all over the country. I've made a number of friends out of this incident, people who were shooting victims themselves, people who were colleagues of the probation officer, people who are colleagues of mine that I didn't know. So there's been a lot of positive that have, that's come out of this. Uh, things I wish I could take back were the family where I, I have I have a young daughter and a son. I, I, as much as my son, is, he's got the police bravado that it, mm-hmm. he wasn't troubled by it. You never know. Sure. My daughter was 17. There's so many things. You, you have kids this age. There's so many things going on at that point in your life that you worry. I worried about my parents. I got, mm-hmm. I got a, a very heartfelt text from my dad, and don't do that again. I said, well, I wasn't really planning on doing it that way, that day. So these are the things you're also managing in response to one of these critical incidents. Sure, yeah. But I think there was a lot of pride by my officers. We have 14 officers on my department at the time, including me. So that means me plus 13. 12 of them were on the scene within an hour. Mm-hmm. And the only one that didn't respond was out in the Midwest <laughs> on vacation on a car trip. And I said he had it worst of all because the other ones were able to come to town and, and try and do something, right? That's what you, you were a firefighter. The, when there's something like this happens, you were a firefighter during 9-11. You want to go do something. I don't care what it is. Right. And, and that that officer in particular was across the country and probably helpless because he's not only can he help, but his, his information line was cut off. Sure. It was probably, yeah. Worst place it to be. It probably is <laughs> the worst place to be for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it... It's nice to hear and kind of restores some faith in what good looks like from a relationship standpoint between the community and, and the police. I agree. Right. And, and I think, Rob, to be honest with you, I think the relations between police and the public they serve are overwhelmingly good mm-hmm. in most jurisdictions. The incidents where the police misbehave or break a rule, that becomes magnified. And then it becomes a problem for all of us. All right, let me ask you this. For all the the rookies out there or the individuals who are thinking about going into into policing, what advice would you give them? Come, give it a try. We are seeing, when I say we, I mean the profession. Mm-hmm. We are seeing record low interest in joining our ranks, right? We used to have an issue where we had so many applicants that we had our pick of the best people. We're seeing that steadily decline. Despite the fact that police officers still do okay financially and with benefits and, and and pensions, right? We're still seeing a decline in the amount of applicants. So my advice would be is if you're not sure, go see if you can do a ride-along with your local police department. If you can't, there's probably one close to you. 
Some chiefs don't like ride-alongs. I, I believe in them. I believe in if we have nothing to hide and somebody has an interest in what we do, mm-hmm. let, let's let them do that. I, I, I was disappointed. It was TV shows. I don't want to mention specific names. But a few years ago, there were TV shows that actually did ride-alongs and allowed the whole country to see what mm-hmm. was inside a car. And they were canceled in reaction to right. the negative publicity on police. And I always thought that was counterproductive. If you want to build relationships between the police and the public, you show what we're doing. You don't, you don't take that show off the air. Yeah, it's just like any organization. There is, there's always going to be some, some bad apples. Mm-hmm. That's just the reality. But there's far more good ones in there. Correct. Right? Such as, I hear stories all the time. Right? And, and I'm not downplaying some of the, the, the bad things that mm-hmm. happen, but I do hear more stories around cop taking the time to change, help somebody change your tire. Mm. Simple as that, right? And We've changed batteries. We've done, right. we've done all of that. Yeah. Uh, I think what the people don't realize is when, when a cop commits a crime, when a cop crosses a line, it's not just uh, the outrage of the people. Police officers are outraged. Sure. What happened two years ago outraged every cop I know. Mm-hmm. We didn't condone that. We wanted to see that prosecuted. Mm-hmm. And anytime there's a crime, like I, I've, I've been involved with, with investigations of police officers that have resulted in, in charges and terminations. Sure. And I've slept that night as well. I mean, I don't want, and I don't think, I, no police officer I know wants a bad police officer working with them. Yeah. I think also what even helped me, and, and as much as knowledge that I do have on the police force, the knowledge that I now have after talking to you is how much of the same leadership skills and efforts, same concepts behind the scenes go into it that, to be honest, I, I didn't, I never knew that they were there. And I think that's really important because at the end of the day, and I'm glad we sat down and talked about this because the leadership is leadership regardless. And I think people fall into the, the mistake of thinking that in a paramilitary type of organization or even the military, I've had military commanders on, that servient leadership, many of the things that we apply in the corporate world are relevant in the public sector as well. And it, it's, it's acquired through time. I'm sure you see that in the public sector as well. In 1996, I became a sergeant. Mm. In 1996, I was, yeah, it was 96. So I was in my late 20s, right? And I'm supervising police officers that were in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. So it's a challenge. Mm. And as much as I talk about compliance versus commitment, I think at that time, I didn't understand the difference between supervision and leadership. Yeah. I thought supervision was I enforce rules and regulations. Mm. I give assignments out. And then I hold people strictly accountable to that. And if I do those things, I have fulfilled my mission. You're managing the process. If I could go back and talk to that guy, yeah. I would tell him, boy, are you missing the boat. Yeah. And I don't think that came until much later when you kind of get experienced and you say, no, I'm, I'm supposed to be doing much more here. I'm mm. supposed to be training. And maybe not every situation is the same. Not everything's black and white enforcement of this or, or, or the assignments have to follow the same regiment that everybody else does. And that's when you really start to, to flourish and, and get your legs under you and say, no, I should be training people. I should be motivating people. And there's no there's no real book on that. It comes through experience and it comes through time. And and I, I look back and there's some times when I say, I shouldn't have done that. I I failed that officer. I didn't I didn't although I held them accountable, accountability is not what I want. I want to teach them. Mm. I want to let embark on them what I know so that they can be better at what they do. 
And that's really what I enjoy now. I still teach. I just taught at the academy a few weeks ago. I still teach college. I love to make a difference in young people, and I love to try and motivate. And I always tell them, no, just get a degree. I think we are stronger when we're diverse. Mm -hmm. Group thinking is something I fully believe in. Everybody should have input. Now, there's going to be times in my business that that's not available, right? If we're going into a building Mm -hmm. where there's trouble, we're going to give an order, and that order should be followed. But that should be the rarity. A lot of times I should give them the why behind what I'm asking them to do. Mm-hmm. And that really doesn't take that long. We could do that in a group setting at a roll call. We're working this special operation. This is why. We're going to do this. This is why. We're dealing with a whole new generation that grew up on a cell phone, that grew up on an iPad, right? And I'm, I'm big on that, too. I'm big on, big on managing across generations. Mm-hmm. Because if you're that supervisor that I dealt with in 1986 that says, do it because I said so, you're not going to get very far. Yeah. You're not. And I think that's wise words for anyone out there who's new that's listening to this. Anybody can come in and just manage a process. I say you do, and that's not leadership. No, it's not. Yeah. It's definitely not. Well, Chief, I, I want to thank you, first of all, for your service. I'm glad to see that you are healthy And I appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom with my listeners. It's been a privilege. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with a friend or colleague who you think might also get some value from it. I'm Rob Fonte, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Leadership Jam Session Podcast.